Welcome to the Difference Makers podcast presented by Waterproof. I'm your host, Justin Tamani. In this podcast, you'll hear from some of the top coaches, brand managers, and athletes on earth. From starting out to where they are now, we'll explore the journey of how they became a difference maker. Before we keep going, do us a favor, hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform to hear more from the Difference Makers. All right, we're live. This is the Difference Makers podcast. Today we have with us Brian Friend. Brian Friend is the writer for The Morning Chalk Up. He's a co-host of the Savan podcast, and he's just an all-around CrossFit statistician. So welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you, Justin. So I want to know how you got started in, in all of this. How did you come to CrossFit? How did you become this CrossFit statistician? Yeah, it was uh it, it started as just a hobby. I I had some friends drag me to the gym in 2013. I ended up um participating in the open in 2014, just kind of you know that's everyone was doing it at the gym and I thought it was kind of cool. Obviously, you know, saw some of the big names on the leaderboard and realized that this was just the start of a season for them. Um that year Regionals was here in Chicago on Navy Pier, so I went to it. Uh Kyle Casperbar won that regional that year. And then I watched the games and you know, that was Rich's last year, mm-hmm. Matt's first year. It was kind of a big year for the sport. <clears throat> and I've always had this, like, just, um, I always do these like little fantasy sports or, you know, competition things with my friends. And I did it that first year. I just like made it, made up this system, made up this thing. And we all drafted that year. We only did men. I think it took us two years before we started also drafting the women. And then, okay. uh, we just like, I followed the games. In the off season, I was like, wow, well, there's got to, like, what's the history of this sport? So I just started watching all the old documentaries, uh, yeah. all the old events on YouTube, the behind the scenes stuff that Savan had done. And I um, started reading some of the journal articles that Greg had written in the early 2000s. And basically, just to keep it brief, for the next three or four years, I was probably spending somewhere from 30 minutes to two hours a day digesting old CrossFit information. Yeah. Somewhere along that timeline, I got my level one. And then uh, when Sevan started the CrossFit podcast in 2000, I don't know when he started, 2017 or 18. In, in the 2018 Open, they did a segment called Trolling the Leaderboard. And I was like, this is my, this is my stuff right here. Because yeah. like I, I, I was in the meantime, what I'd been doing as I like, started to learn more and more was, re, was trying to find out why um like the, the media wasn't covering the sport so as well as i thought it could be covered and really what i mean by that is that they weren't they were doing a great job of covering a few athletes but the rest of the athletes that i also knew were working very hard to get there and sometimes for some of those athletes it would be a heat win like would be the the culmination of years of training yeah and they'd cross the finish line and i'd watch and the announcer wouldn't know their name or the mc wouldn't know their name at the at the competition and i was like it's not right that someone in heat, the heat two lane seven just won this event and all they're getting recognized as is the athlete in lane seven wins the heat. Yeah. So I was like always looking for a chance to shine some light on more of the athletes and not, not just the elite athletes, but maybe some team athletes, teenagers, masters, whomever. And so he was doing this trolling the leaderboard and I was like, oh, this is great. He's going to dive into the leaderboard of the open in ways that people aren't doing. And I listened to the show and I was very, very disappointed. <laughs> and I was like, man, I, I like I'm looking at the leaderboard and I see all these awesome storylines. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to take a chance. And so I yeah. popped up on Instagram, sent seven a DM. I said, 
man, I love this idea, but you really screwed it up in week one. <clears throat> you could have talked about this. You could have talked about this. One of the things I pointed out to him that week, I remember, was for the CrossFit Mayhem team in, in 18.1, uh, they didn't even use Rich's score as one of their top two scores for men on their team because Dre Strom had beat him in that workout. And Matt yeah. Fraser, who was listed on, as part of their team when he was training at Mayhem, had yeah. beat him in that workout. And I was like, you could have talked about this, gave him a couple other examples, and he responded to me. And I was like surprised he responded at all. And he just goes, damn, impressive. Send me more. So um, the next week I sent him some more and I'm watching the CrossFit podcast and he pulls out like three sheets of paper and he goes, well, guys, some guy on Instagram, Brian Friend, <laughs> sent me his notes. So we're just going to. We're just going to use his notes for the show today. I haven't read them yet, so hopefully they're good. And I was like, what the heck? <laughs> and I'm just watching this back in Florida where I was living at the time. And, uh, you know, he's like, oh, this is great. Send me some for week three. So I said in week three after week three, he's like, I want to fly you out for week five. We'll have you on the show. I was like, wow, that escalated quickly. <laughs> yeah. So I flew out to California for week five and Savan wasn't there. He'd been summoned by Glassman to do whatever. Oh. Instead, Tommy Marquez was like the guy he appointed to greet me at CrossFit yeah. HQ. And I'm like, Tommy Marquez, like, he's kind of the guy I want to be, you know? Yeah. He's like, the, he's the guy who's paid to know about all the athletes. I think I know a lot about the athletes, but it's his job every day to know as much as you can about this sport. Definitely. And he goes, Yeah, man, I'm going to be on the podcast with you. And I was like, What? <laughs> <laughs> so Matt Bishop ended up hosting the podcast, and Tommy and I did the podcast. And it's like my first time doing this. First time in CrossFit headquarters, first time publicly speaking about this thing that I've been more or less studying for four or five years. Yeah. And I was a little nervous, but after a few questions, I would realize that I could, at the very least, like not embarrass myself. And so the podcast went on. I think it was okay because they invited me to regionals that year as well. And then we started doing some podcasts at regionals, but it was more trial by fire. I, yeah. I just assumed the podcast would be him asking me things about the athletes or the regional. And the first night, he's like, oh, yeah, by the way, we have a guest on the show, and it's um, it's Pat Vellner. And I'm like, wait, what? He goes, yeah, yeah, we're going to have a guest every night. I said, oh, okay. So I'm just like, whatever. Yeah. Pat Vellner night one, Ben Bergeron night two, Katrin David's daughter night three. So it's like you're like thrown into it. <laughs> yeah. And after, I mean, honestly, after I did that, I was like, okay, like for whatever reason, I can do this. Like I, I feel comfortable talking to the athletes and the coaches. I feel comfortable in front of the camera. Like I'm not nervous. And I think it was just I'd spent so many hours learning about this stuff. Yeah. And for whatever reason, my mind could just recall it that I was prepared. And that's hey, that's just all from taking a taking a shot at it and just throwing a DM to Zavon and giving him some tips that you researched. I try to give him credit for for that. And he's he always throws it back on me and says, "No, man, yeah. you did you did all that work. You created those opportunities for yourself." But yeah, see, if he hadn't uh, responded to that, you know, who knows? Definitely. Hey, that's just creating opportunities for yourself. That's that's amazing. And it's yeah. and really, it's been a lot more of that in the subsequent years. Yeah, I ended up going to the games that year, and we were going to do a podcast there, but then we were told we weren't allowed to do it. That was the year that all the media. Basically, Glassman canceled all the media across it anyway. Yeah. And so he'd shut down some stuff beforehand and a bunch of stuff afterwards. So I ended up going. But all the things that I was supposed to be doing were not going to happen. So oh. I was just there yeah. with my brain and my knowledge, but nowhere to, to put it to use. 
And actually, Tyson Oldroyd was super helpful and friendly that year, and he gave me some opportunities to work with the media team. Um, and I'm actually pretty excited that there is going to be a, a 2018 documentary coming out because I got a chance to be a part of that team. And knowing what I know now three years later and having worked at all these events and gotten to know a lot of the people who create content in the space, yep. you know, that was pretty much like an at, at that time, at least, that was like the all-star cast of videographers and photographers working under Tyson that year at the games, they were kind of all in. He'd bought, you know, rented like 12 red cameras yeah. and all the big names were there. Um, so I think that the storytelling was really had the potential to be really good. And I'm pretty excited to see that one come out. Yeah, that'll be a big one. That's the, uh, the infamous behind or the story of the games that never happened. That 2018 games documentary for you people that, that don't know out there just was canceled when CrossFit fired their media staff. That was the year that, it just never happened. And a ton of content is out there around that year. And a lot so, of people think it's one of the best years. So some people yeah. think it's like the culmination of an era before the legs were cut out from underneath it, which, you know, the media team was all basically let go. So it should be, it should be pretty good. And and just kind of knowing what I know about how we worked that year. And like I said, Tyson was like, he was pulling the strings and making it happen and gave me a chance to be a part of that. But as a result, I met a lot of people at the games yeah. and a lot of the people that I met and some in particular that I met there have been um, relationships that have allowed me to have opportunities in the sanctional seasons um, and then transfer, you know, just transfer those opportunities into subsequent going back the next year, they would tell another director, Hey man, this guy knows his stuff. You should talk to him reach out to him, see how you can help you. And it was always just in the interest of getting more coverage for the athletes, getting more opportunities for them, because I think, you know, if you, we really, if this sport is going to succeed as a sport in the way I think a lot of people want to, it has to be viable and sustainable for the athletes and not just for the top five. I couldn't agree more. That's one of the questions I had for you is what do you think is going to, what is it going to take for this sport to be viable for the athletes, not just for the top five or top 10 or whatever that might be? <clears throat> um, you know, we, this year we saw some of the top especially women not compete, but they're, you know, by not competing, how much could that affect their, their bottom line? Right. I think it's at a, it's kind of a um, transitional period in the sport right now where uh, there's, there have been agents in the sport representing athletes for almost 10 years now, maybe like eight years was when the first ones really started coming around and not, not a lot of people necessarily know them or know who they are and, but even this year, I would say they're yeah. becoming more and more recognizable. Um, and those guys are working hard to make, and I, I don't say guys, there might be some women agents that I don't know about, but there seem to be mostly men, are working mm -hmm. hard to create opportunities for the athletes to make money and earn a living off the competition floor. Now, obviously, yes. they need to you know, compete and do well enough to get those opportunities, and I'm sure there are incentives built into their deals if they do well in, at the highest level of competitions. But, you know, if a year comes up like this, like for, happened for Sarah Sigmund's daughter, where she has a, a freak injury that keeps her off the competition floor for a year, or like the story was with Annie Thor's daughter when she got pregnant and the, that company Noon was willing to support her through the pregnancy, mm -hmm. those are important things for athletes, in particular female athletes who might have um, children, to say like, yeah, I can have a sustainable income if I miss a year for whatever reason. Because otherwise... Sometimes you have that thing happen, you miss a year, and it's like that's the end of your career because there, you know, I had to go get a real job. 
Yeah. And there's a lot of athletes out there. You're starting to see that their agents are sorry, what their agents, but they're able to support themselves. Like they're, they don't have full-time jobs. And so that's trending in the right direction. I think Mm -hmm. probably another big milestone will be if a major TV deal is signed. And I would, you know, I don't, I'm not involved in any of the back background talks or anything like that, but I would imagine that being something that is not just even limited to the game season. Because if you think about what, what are the biggest draws of the year, it's the yeah. games, but then it's probably Rogue and Wadapalooza in Dubai and maybe a couple of the semifinals. Um, mm-hmm. But those fields are more diluted. The semifinal fields are more diluted and they're all in one weekend. You know, there's three of them at the same time. So it's a little bit different if you're trying to sell like um, to, a, you know, to a, a big TV company that you want to cover the semifinals. Then if you say like, well, what if it was the games, Rogue, Dubai and Wadapalooza? That's four big events that are yeah. like isolated events on those competition weekends. That can, you know, a big deal like that can bring a lot of opportunity into the space as well. Now, with CrossFit in the position that they're in, having the the games, you know, kind of at the top, and these other companies, Rogue, Loud and Live, do you think there'll be ever a way that they can come together to form something like that, or are we going to see this separation continue to exist? That's a tough. That's a tough one to to kind of project because. In the past couple of years, when there was, um, you know, more uncertainty surrounding CrossFit HQ, all the things that happened with Greg, obviously selling the company, the games were very different for in 2019, and then they were kind of forced to be different in 2020. You know, a lot of people were starting to wonder: Are the games going? You know, are they losing their edge? Are they losing their position at the at the helm of the ship or whatever? And will some other company or organization come in and create a different season that's going to be? kind of take the reins going forward. And then when um, when the company was sold and Rosa came into play, it kind of seemed like CrossFit got back on track and they were like, no, we're still here and we're still you know, we're here to stay type of a mentality when it comes to the sport. Rosa is very pro the sport of CrossFit in addition to just the methodology. So I think that at this point, and it, you know, I always think about when people ask me this question, I always think about Ray Kroc and McDonald's. And he was like, he didn't want to buy their franchise and name it Crocs. You know, yeah. He didn't, the name is important and the CrossFit games is, it, it, ha, it carries something with it, regardless of who's running it or who's organizing it, just having the name, the CrossFit games, the fittest on earth, that goes a long way. You know, if I just showed up with X amount of money and put on some event, yeah, I might get the people there, but I think it was, I don't think it would have the pre- same prestige necessarily or, or lasting power that the CrossFit games and the fittest on earth has. Yeah. Um, so I think that it's more likely that, that they'll find a way to coexist and hopefully create an ecosystem where they can all coexist successfully and that the events and CrossFit and the athletes can all, you know, improve their, their opportunities to you know, make money and grow as a, I guess, a more of a, more a cohesive entity. I think that's what makes most sense, but we'll see. I think you're right there. Like I'd, I'd like to see something cohesive like that, that does have these features, feature athletes, feature competitions, you know, the thought of a, a competition series leading up to the games was something that, you know, there's like, uh, I look at like the X games in extreme sports world, how there was, you know, there's the X games and then there were different branches of it. And then there's things like, uh, uh, I forget what it's called now, but this, I think it's called the do league skateboarding where they have 
like several competitions that all accumulate with a championship. Yeah, the ch- I mean, the, the, the tricky thing in CrossFit is how many competitions can you realistically do every year and do mm-hmm. well if you want to be an, an elite performer in the sport? You know, I've, um, in the past year or two, I've developed a, a hobby for disc golf. And I've drawn some parallels as I follow the professional disc golf season compared to CrossFit season. But the mm-hmm. very, very notable difference is you can play disc golf every weekend yeah. at a very high level. Just like you can play golf every weekend at a very high level. And just like you can skateboard every weekend at a very high level. Obviously, in all cases, barring injury. But you cannot do high-level competitive CrossFit every weekend. It's, no. it's impossible. And so that's one of the questions that people are always asking is, well, what is optimal or even possible for the best in the world in terms of number of competitions they can show at and show up, like show off their potential in a 12 month period. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's like kind of the gray area right now. And, you know, some people, some of the athletes that did well at the games this year have talked about this and the possibility that it might be more, if you're finishing 15th at the games, like how much have you invested already in terms of time, commitment, prize monies, uh, I mean, uh, registration fees and, and travel expenses and everything else just to get there to place 15th. 15th yeah. at the games is great, but what's the, yeah. pay, what's the payout? It's not that much, no. you know, $10,000, $15,000 or something like that. But if you can... If you just say, well, man, I'm not going to spend eight months training for that. And even if I like maximize my potential, I make 15 grand. Um, I can go to, I can change my, my season around. And while everyone else is preparing for the games, I can focus on Dubai and Wadapalooza. And I can go to Dubai and Wadapalooza while everyone else is in their off season, I'm going to be peaking. Mm-hmm. Maybe I take fifth at both competitions. And now yeah. I'm making 10 times money, maybe. Maybe I make a hundred grand between those two competitions with the different incentives and stuff that they have built in there. Even if it's five times as much, even if you make 50 grand instead of 10 grand, suddenly that's a sustainable income for a year. Yeah. And that's not, you know, of course not counting any potential sponsorship deals or whatever else I'm just talking about on the competition floor, but those t- like you have to think that there are athletes that are thinking like that. Mm-hmm. Like obviously the, the ideal is to win the, the games, but only one person can win the games. And if you start looking at the prize pools, once you get past 10th, like you're not making that much money at the games. No. And it's a no. lot of investment to get there. Once you go past 20th, you're not making anything. Right. So that's a, that's a tricky thing. Now with the future of CrossFit and the athletes, what do you think the next five, two to five years is going to look like? Like We've got guys like Yonikoski, BKG, who are mid to late 20s, but they've also been around for five to seven years. Do you think that we're going to see those guys continue to stick around and stay relevant? Or is it going to be a big push for this younger generation, you know, like led by Justin Medeiros and those kinds of guys? Yeah. You know, I, um, it's, uh, you know, and BKG are interesting examples because they're kind of, it's kind of like Tia Claire Toomey and Brooke Wells. Yeah. And, um, and obviously Tia's had a little more success than the other three or a lot more success than the other three, but they're all 26 to 28 years old. Yeah. And have at least six years of games experience already under their belt. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty substantial. When you look at maybe some people like like Lazar Jukic comes to mind. He's only 25. He's only a year younger than Yona, but this was his first year at the games. Yona's been there six times. So they yeah. have same similar age, totally different career paths to get there. <clears throat> I think that there's gonna be over the next, I think over the next 10 years, there's gonna be a gradual 
decrease in the average age of the game's athletes. Mm-hmm. And if it's 28 right now, which I'm not 100% sure that that's the number, but I think it's right around there, that it'll slide towards 25 or 26 over the next 10 years. So it'll be a small changes over time. Um, I do think that there'll still be the potential for people to be relevant into their early 30s. I still think Velner and Fikowski, if they want to, can be relevant for one to two more years, probably. Um, And by relevant, I mean like threatening for the podium at the games, which is what they've done, you know, for the majority of the last six years. And uh, but I think it will be harder and harder as as time moves on, because you'll have more guys um, who are in their, you know, 20. For women, I'd say it's probably like 20 to 25. And for men, it's like 22 to 27, where that's going to kind of be the sweet spot of the best athletes. And then obviously it'll be a smaller, I think it's going to be very difficult um, to find 10 year games athletes 10 years from now. If that makes any sense. Yes. No, that makes total sense. Like even, even if you think about Haley Adams, like, okay, this is her third year at the games. By the time she's Tia's age, if she's made it every year, she'll already have 10 years experience, but what's the total toll on the body? How long is that Mm -hmm. sustainable from a mental perspective? emotionally does she get distracted with who knows what a family or whatever else kind of opportunities come up yeah and it, and i think that and, and in the meantime if you just especially look at the women that are 16 to 20 right now there's like a dozen of them that are incredible and you have to yeah. think that there's that that's just going to continue continue to happen over the next five years yeah for those of the listeners that don't know brian just put out a list of the top crossfit athletes under 25 male and female and the, and there's a lot more young, like 16, 17, 18, 19 women on that list than men. Yeah. Most of the men are two to two to four years older than that. Yeah. But that, I mean, that makes sense from a, a development standpoint. Most sports are like that where women will develop yeah. a lot more, a lot earlier and peak a lot earlier. Yes. Yes, for sure. Who do you think? has the potential to dethrone a, a Tia Claire to me, or I, I'll use Tia as an example on the women's side. We'll start there. Who has the potential to dethrone? It's not that fun of an answer. Just, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's anyone who can beat her for at least two more years. Um, and for someone to beat her, and this is obviously assuming she wants to continue to compete for yeah. that long. But I think that if she's, committed to it she'll win the next two years um barring injury pretty Mm -hmm. handily and i think that you know the reason why i kind of picked that three-year mark is because with the person that i think has the the next best chance and there's one big if here is is Haley adams but she has to get stronger and so far what i've seen is that she she hasn't really been able to get that much stronger in the time that she's invested and i don't know her training you know, in a, in a supreme amount of detail, but in 2019, she couldn't lift the first bar of the clean event and 2021. So two years later, she couldn't lift the first bar of this event seven, which was the second wave of cleaning and running event. Yeah. And it's like, man, 24 months have passed. Like what you haven't, you haven't gotten 5% stronger in 24 months. Like that's concerning to me. Yeah. If for whatever reason that's able to change for her and she can get, I think, maybe 15% stronger in the next three years, then I don't think there's any holes in her in her game. She's world class. And by world class, I mean podium contender in everything else and every other domain, including mental, mental 
um, fortitude and, and tenacity and grit. And she has a great training environment that she, that she likes, which I think is important. So she's kind of, she's the person that I think has the best chance three years from now to, to win the games right now, but yeah. a lot can change in three years. A lot can change. And what about on the men's side? Do you see Justin Medeiros as being somebody who has the potential to, to make this run of, uh, you know, these great athletes or like, I think this would have been the close, one of the closest podium finishes in the last few years, at least. <clears throat> Yeah, if you're just looking at the points margins, 2019 was closer, um, but that was kind of an anomaly of a. I think that was a you know outlier example, um, and obviously Fraser has been very dominant for a while. This is the first year since probably 2010, where I'm not sure if the the man who won the CrossFit Games is the fittest man alive. Yeah, and it's nothing. And it's definitely nothing against Justin Medeiros. That weekend, he was without mm-hmm. a doubt the fittest person there, yes. man, fittest man there. And Belner's talked about it, um, and I've talked about it. Like every time that there was that he needed to do something in the back half of the weekend, Medeiros, he did it. And a lot of times, he, he like exceeded it. I saw the yoke event. I was like, oh, Belner's going to crush this. And he got yeah. second. Medeiros was third. I saw yeah. the deadlift handstand push-up work, and I'm like, Belner might win this. He did. Medeiros was second. He was yeah. like... And then it comes to the final, and it's like, man, if you're Velner and you're standing there, and in the last three workouts, Velner coming into the final, Velner had taken third, second, and first. Now, we know he'd made some mistakes earlier in the weekend, and I'm not talking about event one. He's been very open about it, that the stretch of six, seven, and eight was where he left all the points on the table. Yeah. Now you're standing there, and you're like, my God, even if I win this final workout and I beat Justin for four straight workouts in a row, I need five other guys to beat him just to, you know, to have a chance. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing like if you know Madero at all. There was nothing that that was that was a great workout for him. He was going to yeah. do. He was not going to get worse than fifth on that workout. And if you're you're looking at the um, fact that Pat lost by 85 points or something at the games this year, yeah, I think that. And I haven't asked him this, and I don't. And he, I don't think he's gotten to it in his recaps yet. Maybe he has today. I haven't seen it, but I think that he just kind of knew at that point. I just need to finish this workout, and I'm going to get second. Yeah. Because Brent's too far behind me and Justin's too, you know, he's just too good. He's not going to give me, he's not going to give me the, the opportunity. So I don't think Pat, you know, was trying to win that workout. I think he was just like, I'll just accept my fate at this point. Yeah. But I don't think I answered your question. Medeiros, I think, has the potential to win again. Yeah. I th- And I think that it would be foolish not to mark him right now as the man to beat. Um, But... I'm really excited for the potential of him doing a hopefully one off-season competition, maybe Rogue, maybe Dubai, maybe Wadapalooza. I don't think it makes that much sense for guys like that to do more than one of those. Yeah. Um, and definitely not to do all three. But if he shows up to it and he doesn't win, now there's a lot of questions. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, it might be a safer play for him not to show up to any of them and try to re- defend his title next year. But I don't think he'll do that. I think he believes in himself. I think he believes in his training and and what him and Adam are doing. And I think he'll want to go out there and have fun. I think he enjoys competing and he enjoys challenging himself. Um, I so if I if you were putting me to it right now, I would I would probably I don't think he'll win next year, but I do think he'll win against at some point. Okay, interesting. Okay, I like that take. (laughs) I like that take a lot. I think. he he impressed me that this past games, 
and not just because he won, but by how he won and just his consistency. And you're right. Like the freestanding handstand pushup event. Oh, he just came in second place. Like he just did really well. He was right there on the yoke. Like I know events that Pat's really good at. We've seen Pat compete at the games for years now. And those are the types of events that Pat does very well on. It's kind of odd object, just like the uh, rope climb skier earlier in the weekend. Mm -hmm. And Justin was just right there. Every event. Yeah. I mean, and you look at his worst events, I think he was a 15th and I think it was in the 550 yard run. So I'm not, I'm not worried about it if the 550 yard run is your bad event and your yeah. 15th, by the way. So yeah, Justin was phenomenal. He was very impressive to me. <clears throat> I was, I was pulling for Pat because I feel like his window to win is smaller. Justin's 22, Pat's 30, Yeah, you know, but as the weekend wore on, I was like, it's hard not to root for this guy because he's showing up and doing what needs to be done every time. And he, you know, he was a worthy champion this year for sure. And I think every, every man in the field will acknowledge that too. I think so. Now I had a question for you. What was the, what were your favorite performances of the 2020 games and kind of, you know, like Annie was one of those. The, 20, the 2021 was, games? 2021. Did I say 2020? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry, 2021. But yeah, like Annie was one of those ones that stood out. Justin winning for the first time kind of stands out. But what were those ones that kind of flew under the radar that people might not realize? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a little bit more granular and okay, talk about specific it. events, if that's okay. Let's do it. <clears throat> I think there was a, it was event two for the men, Heat 1, and it was Samuel Cornway. Yeah. He came into the games very, what people might say, cocky or mm -hmm. arrogant. And talking about how he's going to beat Pat and how he's he's going to win and how people aren't giving him credit for being 10th last year, even though it was online. He earned that spot and he'd improved this much from the previous year and everything else. And I was like, okay, man, like you're talking a big game. I know you've been training down in Mayhem for a couple of months, but like you have to show up and show me that this is not just a bunch of words flying out of your mouth and that you can actually do something impressive. Yeah. And the swim and kayak, you know, people are going to have their capacity in that event and that is what it is. But that next event was a very difficult, demanding event, yeah. and he crushed that heat. And I think he ended up taking second in the event overall. I think someone, I think maybe Pat beat him in the in the next heat. Yeah, yeah. Pat won that event. Yeah, um, and I was like, oh shit, maybe Samuel Cornway is going to be a contender this year. Now it's not, it sounds like he got sick, and we were never able to really see his full potential in any of the rest of the events. But if that is a glimpse into what his actual capacity is then mark him down as someone to watch next season. Okay. And I, again, it's probably not a, a moment that that many people will, will be drawn to considering everything else that happened on the weekend afterwards, but it was not lost on me. Uh, overall for the men, I would say just the general performance of Saxon Panchik, similar to at Granite Games. Yeah. Um, he just is really remarkably consistent. Um, the longer time domain stuff is a little bit of a problem for him still relative to everything else, but it's not as bad as some other people's, um, holes, if you will. And I think he's, you know, again, he's 25 years old and he's got, um, it seems to have a really good head on his shoulders. He's really happy with his coaching and training environment. I think it, we're looking at a you know a, a perennial top five contender for the next couple of years in Saxon Panchik, and he's kind of kind of going to slot right in right where his brother used to be. Maybe even do maybe even he'll make the podium. Like he's that good. Yeah. So for the men, that would be one specific and one kind of general. 
for the women, <laughs> I will never underrate her again on an event like this, but I completely forgot about her prior to it. And then she went on to win the event. And it's Emily Rolfe in the event number 10, the running and toes about workout. Yep. And of course, we know she won the ruck run in 2019, but it's like... The ruck run is to me is a little bit more of a specialty thing. She's a she's a little bit bigger than a lot of the women that competing, just a little taller, a little broader shoulders, and it just makes sense that if she's a good runner, that she'd be better at running with a ruck than someone like Christy Aramo or Kristen Holta. Yeah, but I didn't think that would be the case when you took the ruck the ruck away. Mm -hmm. Now it was just running, and then you have to throw in ninety toes to bar, yeah. and you've got people like Sam Briggs, whose cycle rate on toes to bar is best in the world, and you have. Still have Haley Adams, who's amazing at toes to bar and a good runner, and Kristen Holt and Christy Aramo and Tia Toomey. And I basically pre predicted the f top five women in this workout minus one, and it was the overall winner, and it was Emily Rolfe. Um, so she's, you know, uh, generally speaking, Carol Ann Reason Thibault has been the one to beat in Canada. She didn't, it wasn't un unable to compete this season or see the entire season through. And so Emily Rolfe is now the fittest woman in Canada, 15th this year at the Games. Yeah. And she's got two event wins in her career in those long time domain running workouts. She's obviously world world class in that kind of an event. So, and I don't know if many people have talked about that. So I wanted to give Emily a little shout out there. And then from kind of a more general perspective, um, man, and the women's side is tough. It, this is a tough to pick, but I think I'm really impressed with Christy Aramo. Um, yeah. And I'm like kind of tempted to say Kristen Holta, but I think more people have talked about how, how impressive what Holta did this year was and just the total summation of her career with her retiring and everything. But Christy, I mean, she had to, you know, she had to go through the last chance qualifier just to get into this competition. And she was in the top five for majority of the week and ends up finishing eighth, which is her career best finish. She's now, if I'm, I can't remember if this is her fourth or fifth year at the games, but she's never been worse than 13th there. I think this is her fifth year. Yep. That's pretty impressive. And it and is. I don't think that a lot of people, when they think of, like they think of Christy Aramo O'Connell, they're like, yeah, she's a games athlete. But I don't think they think of her as a multiple time top 10 games athlete. And this is her third time inside the top 10 at the games. And she's starting to like, string together a pretty impressive resume over time. Um, so those are my picks, I guess. I like those. <laughs> I have it on, uh, did you, I don't know if you know this, but I have it on pretty good authority that Emily Rolfe before that event was pretty sick. The whole day before, I don't think she ate very much. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the b kind of uh, bummers or tragic things about the games this year is it seemed like a lot of people were dealing with some kind of uh, illness, and there's speculation about maybe being from the lake. Who knows with everything that's happened in the world this year, and obviously a couple of athletes at the games did have run-ins with COVID of different varieties um, You know, that were unable to compete or see out the competition. And so, you know, obviously in an ideal world, we'll have the best there and all of them healthy and, and fit and ready to perform. And that was probably like the biggest bummer this year is that, you know, it's, it's not that far of a stretch to say that five of the top 10 fittest women in the world didn't get to finish the competition and some yeah. of them didn't even get to start it. Yeah. Um, but that's sometimes how it goes and, and that you can't take anything away from the women who did finish out the weekend. Like they're not. It's not their responsibility that Kara Saunders got COVID. It's only their responsibility to show up and, and finish the weekend in the best that they can do. And that's what all of them did. But when you, you know, it's just crazy. Like you think Catherine Davis daughter took 10th this year. Well, yeah. Sarah Sigma's daughter wasn't there. Jamie Simmons wasn't there. Kara Saunders, Carrie Pierce, Bethany Shadburn, all of whom have top 10 potential. Yeah. Could we have seen Catherine finish 15th? with the same performances if these other five women had been able to compete. And now you're starting to say, 
wow, the women's field is extremely deep and extremely competitive. Yeah. That's it's it's an impressive thing to see how far the sport has come and how competitive that both fields have become. And sometimes it's overshadowed, right, by the dominance of a Fraser or, or a Toomey. But when you you know strip back the layers a little bit more, yeah, man. There's, I mean, in my opinion, Karen Fryova should have been at the games this year from from Europe. She was sixth in the Lowlands Throwdown, and all five of the women that beat her placed thirteenth or better at the games. Yeah, I think she would have finished inside the top eight at the games if she'd been there this year. But she wasn't even to make a, even able to make it through the European semifinals. That's just how deep they are. Yeah. Now, I just want to circle back and just say that Emily Rolf, that wasn't COVID. That was something else. Yeah, it's been yeah, yeah. It wasn't COVID. But coming back to what you said, do you think the qualification process should be altered to allow for some of these regions to be more well represented? I think yes, but but there's some context to that. And I'm actually working on a study right now to try to illuminate this thought a little bit more clearly with some data behind it, because I don't you know, I have like these uh, inklings and instincts about certain stuff, but when I like to look at the data and see if it actually supports the theory. But prior to this year, I did do a study of of um, the because CrossFit's method selection process right now is based on open registration or participation. Yeah, and I wanted to look at elite level performance over the past several years, mm-hmm. and when I did that on the women's side, it was suggestive that the women in Europe have based on their competitive performance earned 13 spots at the games instead of 10. Okay. And in this is in this method it's also considering the fact that every continent will still get one spot. So there's okay. been nothing until this year with the men in Latin America that suggested that either South America, sorry, South America not Latin America, that either South America, Africa or Asia should have more than one spot at the games. So that leaves 37 spots. Mm-hmm. In this in this method, and I think that I can't remember if maybe uh, Oceania women were like had done well enough to get five, and then um, the South the European women had earned thirteen, and then the remaining ones were for North America. Yeah. But um, when I look at the, the Oceanic women's field, I mean, at the start of this year, I said, "Well, if Tia and Kara and Jamie compete there, why is anyone else even bothering to show up?" Like you're not going to beat them in a six event weekend long competition and you only get three spots. Well, that means that Madeline Sert, four-time games athlete, Laura Clifton, who's been great these past two years, Ellie Turner, who's a young up and comer in the sport who needs some opportunities to compete against women outside of Australia. If she's going to be the next, the next thing there, they're not, they they have no chance to make it to the games. And luckily for them, Tia didn't compete there this year and Jamie was injured this year. So it was just Kara took one of those spots and then two spots were open and they were able to go and get some competitive experience at the games. But, you know, if nothing changes for next year, then we're not going to see Maddie Sturt back at the games. We're not going to see Ellie Turner at the games again, even though they're good enough to be there and compete there. Um, the process won't allow for it. Maybe they could get the last chance qualifier, but last chance qualifiers are very difficult. Those, if you look, just scroll through the list, they're like, there's ten to fifteen men and women on that list that you're like, holy cow, I have to beat all of them. Yeah, (laughs) those rosters were very deep for men and women. So I have a a a thought of of a proposed system. I've explored it more on the women's side than the men's because I think that 
there's a stark disparity. The men in North America are still dominating. Yeah. And of course, there's a couple exceptions to that. The BKGs, the Koskis, the Sergi Mayeros. But for the most mm-hmm. part, North USA and Canada, men's men are dominating the competition in a way that the women are not. Yeah. Um, and so I think that if you were to take, I think I think, maybe take three spots from North America women and give one extra to each of the European semifinals and one extra to, or no, four spots because there's four North American semifinals. And if you took one for, we'll just say Lowlands, one for German, one for the Oceania, and then one extra for last chance qualifier, that you would you would get a stronger total women's field at the games. I agree with you there. I, I think feel, you're right. You know, I feel like the sixth best European woman in each of those semifinals, the fourth best Oceanic woman, and the third best last chance qualifier would overall do better at the games than the fifth place finishers from each of the North American semifinals. And if you look at who those would have been this year, well, it was Jessica Griffith, but really it was would have been Christine Kohlenbrander, and we don't know how she would have done. But Jessica Griffith, um, she's a phenomenal athlete, didn't do that great. Reagan Huckabee didn't do that great. Carolyn Connors didn't do that great. And Atlas Games, which was kind of like a weird competition anyway, where there were like 12, nine women within 20 points of each other. But I think last the last one in was Sydney McAlishan, and I think she did the best of all of those that I listed at 25th. But like I said, I think Karen Frey could have gotten eighth or better at the games. Yeah. And if, you know, Maddie Sertz placed 19th and 21st or something like that in her two best years at the games. So I don't know. That's Those are my thoughts, I guess. Right on. You have a very elegant way of putting everything. I appreciate that. Well, thanks, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> how... Um, I mean, you've kind of said how you've amassed this knowledge, but how have you gotten so deep on some of these athletes that nobody has ever, you know, I say nobody's ever heard of, but outside of their bubble, they're not known in the game space that well. They're not known in the uh, training space. How have you done your research to find out about these athletes? Um, do you have a friend who's like amazing with movies? Like he just knows every actor and actress in every movie. Or if you say an actor's yeah. name, he can tell you like his whole IMDb history. I have friends like this. And I'm like, how do you guys know that stuff? Yeah. For whatever reason, that's how it is with CrossFit athletes for me. That's you. When I see a competition and I look at the leaderboard and I look at the results or whatever, like it could be two or three years pass by. And then a name pops on. I'm like, I know that name from somewhere. I think they were at this competition. And, I'll pull, and sure enough, they were there. And I, I can't, I can't explain it. Um, but in addition to that, I do a lot of work on my own. So there are people who create spreadsheets that have all this information about athletes competing at competitions and then send it out to the broadcast team and the videographers and the MCs and the directors and whatever, whoever needs the information. But in my, in my opinion, the person who created the information is the one who actually knows it well. Yeah. All the other people, then it's up to them to do a lot of work to understand how to use that information for their job. And so usually I'm the one who's creating the information and then sending it out to these different groups and walking them through how they can best use it to tell the story that they want to tell, depending on yeah. what their their responsibility or job is. And so I haven't done that for dozens of competitions over the past couple of years. Um, that's just like every time I do it is this exposure to another list of athletes. And, you know, usually there's like, I don't know, 20 to 50 percent of the athletes. I already know who they are very well. Yeah. They're the regulars. 
which leaves another maybe 50% of new new names and new faces. And if Justin, T- how do you say your last name? Tamani. Tamani pops up in one competition. Okay, that's great. But if it pops up at a second competition later that season, now I'm recognizing it. And by the time I see it for a third time, I'm like, okay, I better know who this guy is. So that's just kind of like the rude, like the crude yeah. process of how it happens. This year, as more people have gotten to know who I am, more people on Instagram have reached out to me and said, hey, man, I train with this guy or this girl or I've seen this person in competition and you should have him on your radar. And I, yeah. I never ignore the, those comments. But a lot of times I'll respond and I'll say, why? So like yeah. some guy told me before the um, Torian Pro, hey, man, you should be you should have your eyes out for this guy, John Champion. And I was like, well, why, why should I have my eyes out for John Champion? Yeah. And they never responded to me. So I didn't have my eyes out for John Champion. I saw yeah. him when he competed and I saw how he did. And he was middle of the pack there in Oceana. But I was like, this person's telling me I should look for John Champion, but he's not giving me any reasons why I should believe in this guy. Yeah. And so, usually, you know, if you reach out to me and say, hey, I know so-and-so, then I want to know what, what do you know about him? Because if, the, if it's worth knowing about him, then I want to tell the world about him if I have the chance to. Um, and if not, then, you know, they'll show up to competition and they'll, they'll make a name for themselves anyway. Right on. I, I, I know you're a busy guy. I know you got a lot going on. So I'm going to leave you on that one. But where can everybody find you? For the most part, I'm just on uh, Instagram, Brian Friend CrossFit on Instagram. And um, on the Savon podcast, we try to do several episodes a week, write for the morning chalk up a couple articles a week, typically. Um, those are the main spots. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Brian. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Difference Makers podcast, and uh, we'll see you soon. Every training session introduces a series of questions Am I happy with my performance? Where could I have gone faster? When will I be ready to go again? For Wadproof Pro athletes, also this question. What can I learn from that workout? With a Wadproof Pro subscription, you gain access to a complete training toolbox. From a full-featured exercise log, to side-by-side comparisons, to the ability to record your heart rate right alongside your rounds and reps. You have at your fingertips everything you need to learn to make progress, and to go into tomorrow's training more prepared than today's. The best athletes are the best students, and with your Wadproof Pro subscription, you will have in your pocket the education you need to elevate your training and uncover the many lessons that every single workout offers you. Subscribe today so you can get better tomorrow.